We want to turn now in God's word together and worship him through the study of his word. Um, And we're going to go to Romans chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And we've had this kind of theme this weekend talking about um, being, being guilty and being free. And that's what we want to hit on today is that I am free. And I want to talk to you a little bit just from God's word on how you can be free if you haven't found that freedom yet. And so we kind of started with this idea of chains, right? And when you think about chains, what do you, what do you think of? Uh, maybe your first thought might be, maybe some of you ladies think of a nice gold chain, right, that you get to wear as jewelry. Or men, maybe it's the, the toe chain for your truck, right? Or, or kids, maybe it's the chain on your bicycle that allows you to ride around all summer and have fun. But when we see specifically chains like this one, I think we tend to get more of an image of chains that restrain Chains that hold back, chains that uh, keep us locked down in some way. Maybe these symbolize the chains that would be keeping prisoners locked together or their hands and feet chained so they can't get away. And what's interesting about these kind of chains is I think they've become to be seen as like the antithesis of freedom. Right? You don't tend to think about chains and freedom in the same idea. They're opposites, right? They're, they're, they're what keep us locked and restricted and keep us restrained to some dreadful fate that lies ahead. What's interesting is that the Bible uses a similar picture for humans and their sin. It has this idea that, that in sin we are locked up, that we are trapped, that we are imprisoned in sin leading to ultimate penalty of death. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't just stop with that image. It also gives us a way, it gives us a path to be free. And that freedom is what we want to talk about today, a way to break free from the chains of your sin and the chains that are holding you to death today. And so as we look at Romans 8, here's what I want you to kind of focus on. Faith in Jesus frees me from death, to life. Faith in Jesus frees me from death to life. And let me show you that as Paul talks to us here in Romans 8. So we're starting in verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that sound good to anybody this morning? <laughs> no condemnation? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is this. Number one, I am condemned by the law of sin and death. I am condemned by... By the law of sin and death. Micah, you just read it. I just heard you read it. It said there was no condemnation, right? Why are you talking about being condemned? Well, we're going to get there in a second. But as you think about that idea of no condemnation, does that, does that lift anybody up today? Right? Anybody, could anybody go with a little less condemnation in our world right now? Does anybody else feel like you're getting that at every turn? 
these days, right, whether it be over your politics, whether it be over cancel culture, whether it be over racism or, you know, um, social media or comparisons, I just feel like we are bombarded right now with condemnation, especially if you're a Christian, right? at work, at home, at school, like it's just a barrage. Some of you are like, I would love, Mike, I would love to have just one place in my life, one place where there was no condemnation. Well, Paul says you can have that. Now, what's interesting here is the word condemnation that he's using is actually maybe a little bit different than what you might be thinking in general, right? Um, it's not just condemnation in the sense of like somebody speaking bad about you or speaking down to you, but he's literally talking about like a legal condemnation. In other words, that it, it represents a, a legal um, verdict of guilty. Right? And not only the, the verdict of guilty, but also the penalty that comes along with that verdict. So when he's talking about condemnation, he's talking about the fact that we are guilty and that there is a penalty for our guilt. And he says, you can have none of that. You can be free from that. You can be innocent and free. It's not just that I don't have to hear it from somebody. It's not that I just don't have to, to, to deal with what they are saying. It's that I can be completely and utterly free from guilt and from the penalty of that guilt. Great. Yes, I want that. How do I get that, Micah? Well, Paul says that it's in Christ Jesus. And what he's talking about here in this whole section is that that Jesus is the only way for us to be free from the condemnation of sin. And if that's true, then the opposite is also true, which is that if I am not in Christ Jesus, then I do have condemnation. For all those who are not in Christ, they are under the weight and the condemnation of guilt and sin. And it's because, Paul says, because of the law of sin and death. That's what he calls it. Now, the law he's talking about is actually God's law in the Old Testament that he gave to his chosen people, the Israelites, and here's why Paul refers to it as the law of sin and death. Because if you study God's law, you find out that God's law, first of all, is perfect. And it requires perfection. Nothing less. And the reason God's law is perfect and the reason that it requires perfection is because God himself is perfect. And so therefore he can settle for nothing less than perfection if we're going to be in relationship with him. And if God is good and God is just, he therefore is required to stand for what is good and punish what is sinful. You see, think about this. If God simply dismissed our sin, if he simply just glossed over it like it was no big deal and just kind of pushed it to the side, that would not make him good or just. In fact, it would make him a terrible judge and a terrible God because that's not what God does. 
Let me see if I can give you maybe a, a picture, an illustration of this, right? Let's pretend, hypothetically, last night you're laying in bed and somebody breaks into your house. They assault you and they beat you so badly that you end up in the hospital. They take all your money, all your jewelry, all your valuables, and they rob you. Thankfully, as they're trying to escape, the cops catch them red-handed in the act, and they are able to take them to jail. And then here in a couple months, you finally get your day in court, where you're going to get to stand before the judge and tell them what happened. And and the, the criminal is going to be there, and the judge is going to give a verdict over this. If you went into that courtroom that day, and you laid out the case, and it was clear that the criminal was guilty, it was red-handed, caught, like it's done deal, and the judge saw all the evidence, and then stood and said, you know what, yeah, he did it, but let's just go easy on him. Let's just, let's just let him off this time, like it's not really that big of a deal, let's just, let's just let him go free today, even though he's clearly guilty. That criminal would love that judge, right? He's like, yes, best judge ever. But not you, right? You'd be like, no, worst judge ever. Like, disbar this man. He doesn't know how to do his job because he's not just. The same thing is true with God. So many people want to point their finger at God and yell at God and say, how dare you punish humans? How dare you hurt people? How dare you do this and make them pay for their wrong? What what kind of terrible God would treat people like that? But see, the reality is, if God didn't punish sin, that would make him a terrible God. If he let sin go and acted like justice didn't matter, then he wouldn't be good or just. So God's law requires perfection, and God is the one looking to enforce that, and that's why he says if you don't have Jesus, you have condemnation under the law, because none of us are perfect. Paul goes on and he says, but... Even though God's law is perfect, Paul says that there is something that the law could not do. Right? Well, it's not very perfect, right? If it can't do something, like what good is a law, right? What Paul is trying to say here is this, that although God's law is perfect in the sense of it requires perfection and it perfectly judges sin, there's one thing that the law can never do. It can expose your sin, it can reveal your sin, but it can never free you from your sin. It can never help you with your guilt. It can never do anything to fix the problem. It can only point the problem out. And that's exactly what it does. And so according to this same law that God has given that says that perfection is required, this law says that every one of us, every human, is condemned by their sin and guilty, deserving death. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But the grace, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a penalty coming for all those who are condemned by their sin. And that is eternal death. 
And so the first thing that we have to realize, the first thing that we have to get clear before we can even start to work on the solution is that every one of us humans born into this sinful world in these sinful bodies, that I am condemned by the law of sin and death. Well, Micah, I hear that, but I know I can't be perfect. Right? Like, like, I know me. I, I've seen my life. Perfection is not, on, not in the cards. So then what do I do? What hope is there if I have to be perfect to know God and I can't do that? Well, thankfully, Paul keeps going. Look back at verse 3 again. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh. Not not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the second thing you need to see today is this. Number two, Jesus paid the penalty and fulfilled God's righteous requirement for me. Jesus came to pay the penalty and to fulfill this perfection, this righteous requirement that God's law needs on my behalf. Look here in the text in verse 3, it says, for God. This is one of those great phrases in the Bible. It's kind of like, but God, right? It's that, it's, that, it's that turning point. It's that, yes, God is good and God is just, but he is also a God of hope. He's also a God of mercy and grace and love. And so he has done for us what the law could not do. He made a way for us to move from condemnation to freedom. He made a way for us to be saved from the penalty of our sins and from death and have eternal life with him. And it tells us right here, he did that by sending his own son. I want to talk about that for just a second because I know this is kind of a sticking point for a lot of people who struggle to believe in the Christian faith. Like, what does it mean that Jesus is God's son? Like, how does that even work? Like, I, that phrase, I don't even, that doesn't even make sense to me. Like, well, we're not talking father and son like human fathers and human sons, right? Like, God didn't go find a wife and then have a son. Are, are we all on that? Like, he didn't come down and, and have relations with Mary and then produce offspring. Like, that's not what we're talking about here when it says that Jesus is God's Son, what the text is saying is in Jesus calling himself God's son, he's saying that he has come and made God's essence manifest in human form. In other words, he was God and who came to earth to be a human. And that's kind of a strange concept to us, but it wasn't strange to the Jews at all. This is something that they had heard in the Old Testament, something they had been expecting, something that they knew very clearly. In fact, we know that they understood what Jesus was saying when he called himself the Son of God, because this is exactly why they arrested him. This is why they put him on trial. This is why they wanted him condemned to death, because they believed he was calling himself the Son of God. In other words, he was calling himself God, and therefore that was blasphemy in their minds, and he had to be 
put down. And so they knew exactly what he meant when he called himself the Son of God. To be the Son of God means to be of the same nature as God. It means to be of God. And if you have the same nature as God, if it's the same essence, then essentially you are God. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when Paul says that God made a way for us by sending his own son, what he's actually saying is that God made a way for us by God himself coming down to earth to deal with our sin problem. And he goes on to say that he, he, by sending his own son, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now the word flesh there, the way Paul uses it in this section, basically just means humanity. All right? When he says that Jesus was made of flesh, he basically means he had a human body. Right? He, he was in, even though he was God, he was in human form, just like you and I. And he emphasizes here flesh by using the word sinful. That he came in, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because Paul knows what we all know is that we as humans in our humanity are sinful beings. We just naturally are. We're just naturally bent to always want our own way, to always try to, to, to make sure that we're the ones taken care of. We have a selfishness about us. We have a pride about us. You don't have to teach a baby to, to lie or to, to disobey. They just get that naturally, right? Parents, can I get an amen, somebody? Right? They, they just get it. They just know how to do that because we're naturally bent. We're sinful flesh. But here, notice, Paul doesn't say he came in flesh. Doesn't say he, doesn't say he came in sinful flesh. It says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is so important. This is key to all that Jesus is. That all, he came in the appearance and in the form of, God, of, of humanity. He was still God and therefore never sinned. He never took part in our sinful flesh like the rest of mankind. In essence, Jesus was like a human doppelganger. I just thought about this this week. It's just like a new I thought this like light bulb moment, right? Like, like he came in the form. He was a lookalike. He was a stand-in. But he wasn't like the rest of us. He wasn't sinful. He didn't have that part of humanity in him. He just looked like us. He had the likeness of us, but he was not like us. This is why he can be who he is. And it says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. The Greek there means that he literally came as a sin offering. That he came to, to be the sacrifice for sin. Which is again another Old Testament reference where Paul is pointing back to the fact that under God's law, if you were guilty of sin, the only way your sin could be erased and you could be cleared of that was to give a sacrifice. 
right? That you had to bring an animal, and that animal, you then put your hand, and and your sin guilt transferred to the animal, and then the animal was killed and sacrificed in your place, and you were washed clean of your sin. And so by saying here that Jesus came for sin or as the sacrifice for sin, Paul is saying that he was coming as the once for all perfect spotless lamb that would take away the sin of the world. Jesus was the last sacrifice that God ever required. Everything else is no longer relevant. Because only God in the flesh can come with the level of perfection needed to cover the sin of all who would believe. So he came for sin, to take the punishment for sin, to take our punishment for sin. And God put our guilt and the wrath that we deserved on to Jesus Christ as a substitute to pay for what we owed. And then it says, he came for sin, and in doing so, Jesus condemned sin. In other words, when he paid the penalty for sin with his life, he took God's wrath for sin, doing away with our condemnation. Right? He, he washed us clean, and he did so in the flesh, it says. This is why the cross is such a huge deal. He paid for our sin with his own physical body with his breath, with his life. Somebody had to die for sin. And that somebody was Jesus. God in human flesh. The law could never make us perfect. The law could never free us from sin. So God came down and he gave his own life to do it instead. so that, it says, he could fulfill the righteous requirement. Righteous is just a fancy Bible word for perfection. Right? It just means to be perfect. And God's law, as we said already, requires perfection. And so Jesus came, he lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and then he took that life and he gave it for us on the cross to cover our sin. And he took our sin and he gave us his perfection, his righteousness, and he fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we could have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or with God the Father. Justice had to be satisfied. Sin had to be paid for. And Jesus did that for us to fulfill the righteous requirement. Think about that. Do you understand what Jesus did for you? What he did for me? This is where salvation starts. It has to start with this understanding that Jesus did the work, but we get the paycheck. That, That Jesus wrote the paper, but we get the credit. That, that Jesus built the house, but we get to live in it. Jesus made the game-winning shot, 
but we get the trophy. Theologians call this the great exchange. That when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he took our sin, and in exchange for our dirty, filthy, wicked sin, he gave us back his perfect righteousness. You will not ever find a better deal than that. Jesus died so the guilty could go free. Jesus paid the penalty and fulfilled God's righteous requirement for me and for you, if you'll believe. So we're all guilty and condemned by the law of sin and death, yet Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the righteous requirement for us. And then lastly, point number three, I can be set free through faith in Christ. Look back at verse one with me again. Verse one says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where we started, right? No condemnation. That's what we're going for. That's what we're looking for. That's what we want. And it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That it's only possible through him. So how do I get that? What does it look like to be in Christ Jesus? What does that take? I just realized I still have this on. Apply hard for you to take me seriously whenever I'm wearing a glow stick. What does it take to be in Christ Jesus? Paul says that the law of the spirit of life has to replace the law of sin and death. In my life, in your life. So let's talk about those two things. The law of the Spirit of life is the new law, it's the new covenant, and it requires faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. That's what you need to have no condemnation for the guilt of your sin. I have to believe that Jesus is God who lived the perfect life that I cannot live. I have to believe that he died a sacrificial death in my place for my sin on the cross. I have to believe that he rose again on the third day, praise the Lord, to give me new life with him and eternal life with God the Father. I have to believe. I have to put my faith and trust In Jesus alone. That's the spirit. That's the law of the spirit of life. And that has to replace, in my heart, the law of sin and death. The law that says I have to be perfect. The law of works righteousness. 
I have to believe, I have to stop believing rather, that I can earn salvation through my good works. If I'm just good enough, if I just do enough good stuff, if I just give enough money or serve at enough places, or if I'm just better than my neighbor Bob, then surely I'll get in. Surely God, that'll be good enough, that'll satisfy what he wants, because I'm better than most people. It doesn't work that way. I have to stop believing that I can overcome my own sin and make it good with God. I have to stop believing that I can be perfect before a holy God. That is a futile way of thinking. And it will never happen. We have to give up this idea that I can reach perfection on my own. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be a little bit of a perfectionist. Which my mom would say is like the overstatement of the century. Understatement, not overstatement. No, I, I always wanted to do things just right. I always wanted to do, do things just perfectly. And one of the ways that I strove for that the most was at school. I wanted to have those perfect grades like all the time. And so I remember when I got to high school, that was my goal. 4.0, right? Like four years, 4.0, straight A's, we're going to do this. And so I worked and I worked all these classes, straight A's freshman year, straight A's sophomore year. Everything's going great. And I get to junior year. Honors American Lit. I hated that class. And that, that teacher, man, he was like hardcore. And I worked and I worked and I worked and I got a B. Now, for all my math friends in the room, you can help me out here, okay? How many classes would I have to take from that point forward and get straight A's in every class? How many classes would I have to take and get straight A's from that point on to get back to a 4.0? Not going to happen, right? I could take classes until the end of my life and get A in every single one, and I would never get back. I'd get close, but I would never get back to 4.0 because that ship had already sailed. I had already lost that in American lit. Scarlet letter. Just like, Seriously? but it was gone. The perfection was ruined. And no matter how good I was, no matter how much I did after that, it couldn't get back to perfect. That's how it works with God. That's how it works with sin. Do you realize it only takes you one sin in your entire life to ruin perfection? That one time that you lied to your parents. That one time that you took something that you shouldn't have taken. That one time that you lost your temper and yelled at your kids. I know that only happened once for you, but that one time, that's all it took. It only takes one to ruin perfection. That's why works righteousness doesn't work. That's why we need a Savior. 
That's why faith in Jesus is the only way to get back to perfect because he takes your sin and he gives you his perfection. So we have to exchange the law of sin and death for the law of the spirit of life. And when you accept through faith the law of the spirit of life, when you accept Jesus Christ, you are, Paul says right here, says you are set free. You are free from trying to earn your salvation anymore. You're free from trying to to prove yourself. You're free from the penalty of sin. You are free from the sentence of death. You are free through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 4, Paul says that once you are free, you are free to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When you finally put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, he now starts to work in your heart and you're finally free to experience life the way you were created to experience it. Walking with the Lord, you're finally free to experience the fullness of all that he has for you in his, this relationship. You're free to live in the promise of eternity in heaven with him. And as our faith in Christ moves us out of sin and into the Spirit, the Holy Spirit changes everything about us. And we start desiring and wanting to live the way that God calls us to live. The indwelling sin that we've lived with our whole lives is replaced by the indwelling Spirit of God. And you are forever changed. That's no condemnation. That's true freedom. But friends, here's the key today. Freedom requires faith. It's the only way you get there. And so, if you're here today, and you have never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, to save you from your sin. I want to encourage you to do that today. With everything that I have, if I could force you, I would, but I can't. This has to be your decision that you decide, I'm going to quit trying to do it myself. I'm going to quit trying to earn my way. I'm going to quit trying to rely on me, and I'm going to put all my faith and all my trust in the only one who can save me, Jesus Christ. If you want to do that today, there's a three-step process. Starts with A, admit. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to finally admit to yourself and to the Lord that yes, I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. I am not perfect and I can't fix this sin problem on my own. I admit I am a sinner who needs a savior. And then second step, B, believe. You have to believe everything we just talked about. That Jesus Christ was God who came in the flesh and lived a perfect life and went to the cross to give that life for you. To die in your place for your sin. Only to go into the grave and three days later raise back to life to prove that he was God and to conquer sin and death so that you can be free 
today. You have to believe that. You have to put your faith in that reality. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then step number three is C, confess. Confess that Jesus Christ from this day forward is your Savior and your Lord. That you're submitting everything to him. You're relying on him. You're trusting in him to save you and to give you eternal life. And if you will do that today, admit, believe, confess, then you will experience the life-changing freedom of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside of you and changing everything about you so that you're more like Christ. You will be free from the sentence of death. And so if you haven't done that before and you want to do that today, I would encourage you, take that step. Why would you walk out of here and not get that? Why, why would you leave and not grab hold of the freedom of life that God has promised you? You can be set free today through faith in Christ. But that's the only way. Faith in Jesus frees me from death to life. So here's how I want to end today. If you would just give me a couple more minutes. Everyone just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment here, please. Nobody looking around. Just please honor the people around you. Honor the Lord right now just by giving us a moment here. Every, every head bowed, every eye closed. Here's what I want you to think on. If you are here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never asked him to save you from your sin, but you want to do that, you want this to be your day, then I want to encourage you, I want to invite you just to pray this prayer. Now, these words aren't magical. This is a matter of faith in your heart. But if you truly admit, believe, and confess today, then this prayer is all you need to be saved through Jesus Christ. You can just repeat something like this after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I I admit I am a sinner. But I admit I have missed perfection. I have failed before you. And I need a Savior. So I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he rose back to life to give me forgiveness. And so today, I ask you, God, please save me. Save me from my sin and make me one of your children. Come and change my life. I want freedom with you. In Christ's name.